Hello, and welcome to Ego Exposed. I'm your host, Jonathan, and we've got an exciting episode five for you today. I've got three people with me. Uh, my friend Prashant from last or one of the previous episodes. Uh, we've got Eric, and we also have Joe, the moderator of Holofractal's subreddit on reddit.com. So I'm going to let them each introduce themselves. Uh, Prashant, we'll start with you. Uh, welcome back, and thanks for being with us again. Yeah, it's always a pleasure to be on here. I had a great time last time. If you want me to really introduce myself again, I guess I'll just make it simple. I'll say that love made me realize I am everything. Knowledge made me realize I am nothing between the two my life flows. So I just want to take that conversation forward on that note. Nice. Well, thanks for uh, coming back on, and we'll definitely take that conversation forward uh, this episode, I hope. Um, Eric, you want to tell us a little about who you are and uh, you know what you have to add to the conversation? I'm not sure how to follow that. Um, uh, I'm Eric. I'm a good friend of Joe's from college age. He turned me on to Olifractal, and, and I've been following that path of science since and um, merging it with the, the ideas of consciousness and what reality really is and uh thank you for having me on yeah thanks for being on and this episode we're going to kind of talk about what holofractal theory is just kind of see where everything takes us and where the conversation goes uh so joe do you want to uh introduce who you are yeah sure so i'm joe i'm d8 underscore thc on reddit and i made the holofractal sub i think about three years ago now I guess I stumbled on The Sims' work a couple of years back, and after like investigating it for a couple of months, I couldn't shake that he was really onto something, so I just kept digging and digging. For me, it explained a lot of things much better than the current uh, physics paradigms do, and the current, current models that we have that are, seem completely disconnected and don't really unify the different branches of science into like a cohesive uh, framework that can kind of sort of be followed from you know, physics all the way up to biology and consciousness. And so I, I thought that what he was doing was super important. And I wanted to just, you know, help spread the stuff he was doing. And I guess the things that are connected to it, which seem to be pretty vast. And so that's why I, I started the subreddit on, on Reddit. And it's been growing nicely. Um, part and thanks to you guys who have been there for a while. I know Karmache has been there for a couple of years. Isn't that right? Or Prashant? I yeah, kinda... I think I, I came in around 2015 or late 2014. Was it 2015? I can't even remember. But uh, I couldn't turn back once I had gone into that subreddit because it was one of the most mind-blowing scientific examinations that I had encountered when I came across Nassim's theory. And to see the kind of community that was contributing all like the same point of view from so many different points of view 
was just blowing my mind because it didn't even feel like it was scientific anymore it felt it was going beyond the whole realm of reality or the very definitions of it that had been uh, imprinted on my mind at that point in my life so i'm really thankful to d8 for introducing us all and connecting us together because it's been an incredible experience so far and i just know it's going to get more incredible this going forward hey thanks yeah i think i was just at the right place at the right time and saw the op- saw an opportunity for it but really it's it's nothing without the users you know i just made a got lucky to make a space i guess for it um but it's interesting you say that it's going beyond the science because there is a point where you like people shouldn't get the wrong idea that this is a mathematical equation or equations that describe everything we see because you always still brush up against that mystery you know just because we are starting to write the equations that describe you know the evolution of the universe and its non-local properties and how consciousness or awareness can become more refined over time and stuff like that like we're still discussing something that we we brush into the metaphysics of constantly which is pretty cool yeah it's also pretty murky and a lot of people don't like being in the uh the metaphysical world because it's not something that we can normally consciously experience without um, I'd say some kind of focused effort or practice getting into kind of the mystical teachings like yoga and I don't even know, like the mystery schools and everything, the initiation into it. And I think there's different ways to kind of access the metaphysical, but it's not going to be with your, your senses or, or something that you can measure with a, a microscope right off the bat. And I think that we, we don't really know how to get in tune with that from a a physical perspective yet. I think the West in particular faced like a, a, a particular drought in, in the kind of uh, availability of these uh, esoteric information about optimizing the human body because in the East, I don't think we've ever had that problem despite having material problems evolving through our history. So in a way, all of us have had some sort of spiritual background which has helped us to ground ourselves in 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 a really helpful way even though we have our own share of problems but i feel like the west has really been limited in its access to these kind these kind of uh, perspective expanding uh, esoteric schools of thought do you think that was on purpose or do you think that's kind of something that grew up over the weird evolution of west like western society or maybe a mixture uh i guess through through over the through i mean it's been going on since the middle ages but then there's never been a state where you can collectivize information and collectivize resources so efficiently in the world so far so i feel like the west was at a benefit having the first hand to that but in the same process, we didn't have a very collectivized school of thought. So there was a lot of uh, like control systems running wild. And then they turned into these really rigid materialistic paradigms that kind of wanted, they, they, they deliberately wanted to limit the access of the society to these esoteric schools of thought. It reminds me of what you said earlier. It's like both sides, even the like the materialist side, which is doing measure, is still trying to approach the uh, like the universal understanding, whether they know it or not. You know, it reminds me of like Descartes and 
it's not that the the measuring is not important. Not not that the measuring is not important. I don't know how I'm, what, what I'm trying to say is like we need the Western sort of breaking matter down to its pieces, uh, reducing it. You know, we got nuclear power out of it. We got a bunch of technologies out of it, but it's hitting a wall, I guess you could say. Yeah, I mean, the me- I'm not. The measuring is important. I mean, the scientific method is a good method, and it should be backed up and used. But I think the problem is we don't necessarily know how to measure it yet. And if we don't know how to measure it or we can't um, even perceive that it's there to know to measure it, you know, just to discount it outright doesn't give it enough uh, credit. It doesn't give it a chance. And I feel like we'll limit ourselves in the discoveries that we can make if we don't allow ourselves to stretch a little bit and uh, don't be so uh, strict on, on what we try and pursue. Totally. Like the easiest example of, of this kind of limited thing is like, ask, uh, ask science to explain like love, right? If you ask them to explain love, they'll probably give you a paper on like, you know, Oh, it's oxytocin. Right. Exactly. They're just limited to neurochemistry. Right. But you're like, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the feeling or the subjective experience of love. And there you've hit a brick wall. They've got nothing. And it's kind of amazing how they can completely, you know, uh, block this entire this entire perspective of, of consciousness itself, which is how we're experiencing and documenting and measuring reality uh, all in one swoop, you know? Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, it... it gets into where, well, that's psychology, you know, at that point, but they, it's a soft science. It's not even given the same level of respect as science or math or physics. I, I don't know. I feel like it's looked down upon, um, but it, it, even so, it's reduced. It's reductionist. They take it down to just an imbalance in the neurochemistry or, you know, some kind of disturbance, something that's abnormal. Uh, Joe, you brought up the, the love word, the subjective experience of it just reminded me of of how the space memory network consciousness paper kind of showed that the connections you build up over over time in your future and reaching to the past because this universe doesn't have time we have time memory creates time you don't have time without memory so just reaching forward and backward through time these experiences you create with your loved ones over that time impact you as soon as you meet them. Yeah, I'd, lo- I'd love that part of the, the paper. The... Yeah, so let, let's back up a little bit. Um, so I think that's a good place to introduce us because we were going to talk about what holofractal theory is. So this unified space memory paper, uh, Joe, what is that? So the paper is basically an exp- uh, it's an expansion on Nassim's uh, quantum gravity solution which I guess we should uh, go into first, but it basically extends his solution into uh, explaining sort of cosmogenesis, which is the uh, evolution of the universe and the evolution of the universe towards complexity and awareness and consciousness. So it's basically describing the unfolding of whatever this is over time, and it does a much better job of it, I believe, than any sort of uh, cosmogenesis theories that we have now, which don't exist at all <laughs> um but yeah so i guess i guess that necessitates going into the what the holofractal solution is to begin with so uh, for people who are unfamiliar it basically just describes a, a quantumly entangled non-local universe which basically 
describes how how space itself is a wormhole fabric. It's basically uh, like singularity at every point, and this allows for quantum entanglement to be sustained between basically any any point and is sustained through any point. And the way we know this is because using his solution, um, I guess I'll back up and I'll explain how he, how he arrived at his solution. Basically, the first thing he, he takes is the quantum vacuum energy expectation value, which is basically how much energy are we supposed to see in empty space? And you'll see some like different interpretations of this because we don't have a quantum gravity solution yet. But if you look at basic quantum field theory, it says we should see this crazy amount of energy in the vacuum. And we think we don't. You know, that's this is like what we were going back to science, you, you know, using observations, but they're they're interpreting these observations through subjective belief systems. So when they look it out into the deep universe and they don't think that they're seeing this energy, they write off this energy. But, you know, we have a lot of beliefs about how this energy would interact that could be wrong. So basic quantum field theory states that, you know, every point of space is a harmonic oscillation of space, which means it's like jiggling a little bit. And when you add up all of these jiggles in empty space, you get this huge number, 10 to the 93rd grams per centimeter cubed. And so the sim starts from this and tries to derive the mass of matter from this, from this instead of uh, trying to like break the atom into quarks and trying to explain how quarks get there. Energy. So he's, st he's starting from fundamental, uh, the fundamental tenets of quantum field theory, and the interesting thing is he finds that the proton, when you when you look at this quantum vacuum energy in a certain way, which is sphericalizing these harmonic oscillations instead of how quantum field theory treats them, which is sort of like a square oscillation, and he packs these these spheres properly in the proton, which sounds weird, but did did that make sense up to that point? I feel like I kind of rambled a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you definitely touched on some things that I want to expand on. Like um, you mentioned the uh, the harmonic oscillation. What um, what's oscillating? Yeah, that's the question, isn't it? So it's the, the, that question is actually pretty difficult to answer. Uh, the, the the answer that when you go on Wikipedia, it's the electromagnetic field. But uh, in, in the Sims theory, the electromagnetic field and space and light these are all the same fabric. It's the same substance. Um, and so it, it's, it's, it's all three of those answers. It's space, it's light, it's electromagnetic energy. It's all the same substance. So it, it, you immediately brush up against the metaphysical, which is, you know, what, what is that? Like, what, what does that come from? And how like do you what is consciousness? You know, what are, are we all made up of the same stuff? I mean, right. it, I think science would say yes. And we're just all in different configurations. Totally. So yeah, when when they say harmonic oscillation, they're talking about uh, field energy. Like they're talking about the electromagnetic field, and the, but they don't really have an answer to. They already in the mainstream, you, you say what is energy, and it's like that's oh, the ability to do work. But you're brushing up against the unknown already there. Um, so we we are starting with that space is full of energy, and that's where Nissim's solution is basically starting from. He he does sort of explain energy as sort of an infinite spin of a substance and you keep zooming into these harmonic oscillators and you're going to get more fractal spin and you keep zooming and you're going to get more fractal spin and so the answer could sort of be that the whole thing is sort of just um spin but never of what there's yeah no we don't know what's spinning yet
Right. Yeah. So 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 uh, those oscillations. There's a there's a fundamental one, and that's known as uh, it's derived out of Planck's constant. Planck's constant, and so that's like a a set of measurements or a set of it, yeah, it's basically a set of measurements that describe a single harmonic oscillation, and it's a certain size, and it's a certain energy, and it's a certain uh, it takes a certain amount of time to do one oscillation, and we know this because we know that when you when you like heat something up or when something rad radiates energy, it does it in these specific packets. This is like how quantum theory was birthed because we thought originally thought that energy would be moving um, in a continuum, you know, like if you heat up an oven, it would be moving not as discrete energy values of energy higher, but that it would be uh, moving continuously. But we've proven that energy works in discrete quanta, and the most fundamental quanta is this Planck-sized packet. So that's where the sim solution, uh, and when you add up the Planck-sized packets in space, that's where you get the 10 to the 93rd grams number. So he took that and sphericalize that unit and use that as a starting place. And once you have uh, a structure of space that's made out of these units, then you basically can derive the whole thing. All right, so so you mentioned fractals, and we're going to get into those. The hollow and uh, hollow fractal, is that holographic? Yeah, so his solution is basically just taking these Planck spheres and filling the proton out with them. So it's like, okay if we know that the vacuum is made up of these Planck spherical oscillations and we know how much energy each sphere is and we know how big each sphere is and we know how big the proton is, well, how, how many of these spheres fit in the proton and what does that energy look like? And when you do that, you get the mass of the observable universe, which is estimated around like 10 to the 55th grams. So right off the bat, using this uh, fundamental quantum field theory, constant, Planck's constant, and just just uh, packing it in the right way, and the proton yields the mass of the universe inside the proton volume. And then, so it's like, okay, but the, the proton doesn't doesn't weigh the mass of the universe. That's ridiculous. Like, there's no way. But that's when you get into the whole, um, the wormhole connection in the vacuum part. So <clears throat> basically, there's another theory called the holographic principle that came out of string theory, which talks about the encoding of information and how a black hole surface can encode its volume. So since the proton weighs this enormous amount, uh, we can apply the holographic principle because it's clearly a black hole and we could see what happens. And so when you, when you take these spheres on the surface of the proton and when you divide them by the, by the spheres that fit in the volume of the proton and you multiply by one of, the, one of these Planck spheres' masses or energies, then you go to the mass of a single proton or the rest mass of a single proton which is like 10 to the negative 24 grams. So we've got this super simple equation that not only spits out the mass of the universe, which is you know 10 followed by 55 zeros, but when we do this simple algebraic or geometric um, equation to it, divide the surface by the volume, then you go to the mass of a single proton, which is 10 to the negative 24th grams. So this is, um, it's, it's like extrapolated that, that these surface spheres must be like, wormhole terminations that are connected to other protons and you could keep doing um, calculations like if, if there's 10 to the 40 spheres on the on the surface that means each proton is wormhole entangled with 10 to the 40 more protons and those 10 to the 40 are entangled with 10 to the 40 more and that adds up to the amount of protons estimated protons in the universe which is 10 to the 80 and so you could just you you could keep going and going you can calculate the the size of the 
the cosmological sphere of the universe, um, calculate the the attractive force that two of these protons would have if they're very close to each other, and it, and it replaces the strong nuclear force uh, in that in that regard. And so, yeah, that's the basics of the solution and, and how it's holographic. I went out. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, so, all right. So he's saying that the proton is made up of these Planck spheres. Like the volume of the proton is equal to the amount of space these Planck spheres would take up. Yep. Yep. And what's the difference between the proton and empty space then, right? And the the only difference seems to be that the proton is a group of these Planck spheres that are uh, co-spinning or co-moving together. Um, and so that's that's the only differentiation between Planck spheres in empty space and Planck spheres in the proton is that there's a coherent uh, geometric and spinning spinning flow of them. So there's a there's a toroidal energy dynamic to this, right, which ties into uh, the bigger implication of the theory. Yeah, definitely. This is uh, a very fundamental part of of hollow fractal theory, which is. Um, like the dual torus, which he actually worked on, or Nassim worked on way before his his quantum gravity solution, just through um, sort of logic and tautologies and observations, seeing that most things move in a toroidal, um, ener- a toroidal energy pattern, a fractal toroidal energy pattern, so that toroids are made of toroids, are made of toroids, are made of toroids, which when we look around seems to be pretty evident when you look in the, in the right uh, light. Okay, so fractals. Let's um, let's just define a fractal real quick. So we love definitions. Yeah. So I don't know the formal definition. Well, I guess I could paraphrase the formal definition, which is a uh, it, it's a pattern that is repeated at all scales infinitely. It's like a geometric pattern that's repeated at all scales infinitely. So no matter where you zoom in, you get the exact same the exact same pattern, basically. Is that the right yeah, as above, so below principle. Yep. I, I've heard the example. Well, th- this is one example because they're they're everywhere. But um, if you measure a map and you go around the map with lines, and you then you zoom in and use a smaller line, like half of the distance of that line, you can get a more accurate measurement uh, of a shape or a like a a map of landmass, and then. If you zoom in and you half those lines, you can get an even more accurate measurement. And you can do this an infinite number of times going to a smaller unit of measurement and everything. And, uh, I mean, is that a fractal? It's definitely a fractal, and you actually get an infinite length. You know, you get, uh, if, you, if you keep having the, the length of your yardstick, you eventually, that, that's a curve that goes to infinity, which is kind of cool. Yeah, definitely. It's kind of similar to what we're, what basic quantum field theory is saying too, which is that these um, that if if energy is quantized and then the smaller the section that you quantize, the higher the energy. And that that's how if you go to Wikipedia and you type in vacuum energy, you'll see that the vacuum energy value is formally infinite due to this almost exact same principle. So uh, I just wanted to go back to to one interesting quote from uh, the four tab the four tablet of the Emerald Tablets of Thoth, and that says, "Know ye that all space is ordered. Only by order are you one with the all. Order and balance are the law of the cosmos. You shall be one with the all." So 
essentially this theory is uh, assigning a, a pixel substructure of space, right? Which which the Planck sphere unit fulfills. Yes. Nice. So yeah. Uh, I mean, I have you always come from a predominantly consciousness expanding perspective. So, like, I I made like a quick quick summary of the whole theory, and I just wanted to run it by, see what you think of it. I basically say that uh, consciousness to me is essentially like an operating system within which nature is encoded. And uh, I mean, I can't really put a finger on what consciousness is, but we can certainly study the mechanics it uses to animate energy in the universe, right? So um, now the the one way in which the holographic principle can work in in a living universe is if there's a feedback mechanism, which is uh, provided by the toroidal energy dynamic that is self-referencing, self-replicating, and self-sustaining. So this is the this is the energetic dynamic the torus, which facilitates it to happen on a fractal scale, right? So what this implies is that there is an architecture of space-time, which is built from information, and it's quantum entangled through a micro-wormhole network. And this is what the the all-in-one-in-one-in-all principle of a hologram fulfills, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. That was beautifully said. Yeah, that was awesome. Um, so I guess this segs into the space memory network on the science side because what you described is basically what they're describing. But you described yeah, it. we were building up to that paper. Uh, <laughs> so the, the unified space memory uh, network paper that uh, that we mentioned in the love discussion earlier. Right. So when I heard this this theory and kind of put all those pieces together, and just as you beautifully. Uh, said right there, Prashant. Um, my thought was, what would you expect to see from like a biology standpoint? And the space memory network paper does does the, just that, where it looks at uh, uh, DNA and and brain chemistry, and it ties. Um, so in the in the brain, the brain's made up of mostly water, and this water is is it facilitates the electrical signals going from neuron to neuron, but these electrical signals are, are coming from water spinning through microtubules, which are micron-thick uh, tubes in, in the brain that they control or, or have been shown that the, when water spins through them, it pops out light particles, biophotons. And these, these biophotons are, are directly linked to uh, memory retention um, when, when they're in peak production um, you have the, the best access to your memory and creation as well. And that is controlled by the temperature of the brain, the temperature of the water in the brain, which in turn is controlled by the pineal gland, which is the, the third eye. Whoa, that's cool. So the biophotons, those are, I mean, it's like light, like biological light that your brain puts off? Yes. Actual light particles that are are spun out of these microtubules and they, they find that these microtubules are also in every single cell in our body and every cell in existence. They're, they're attached to DNA or they, they facilitate information transfer um, with DNA. Awesome. We'll link to this uh, paper in the show notes. 
but yeah, I wonder if like in uh, Alzheimer's patients or something that they have a lack of this these biophotons, or people that have uh, amnesia or certain memory disorders. Well, those um, I believe those have been tied to calcification of the, the pineal gland um, in many ways. Um, aluminum from deodorants, for example, um, aspartame from diet sodas. They it's been shown to, to calcify the pineal gland and, and, and cause Alzheimer's and, and other diseases, degenerative diseases. So it, it makes sense that that would, uh, that they're linked to biophoton production, or at least the biophoton production is an effect of those degenerative diseases. Yeah, I think uh, in that, in the same article, I also remember reading that uh, this is possibly what represented the halos in all those early saints, people who were able to channel this energy to their peak perceptions, they were able to raise their their energy through the spine and develop a greater increase in the rate of biophoton emission. And this is what was causing the radiance behind them. Basically, they were entities who had configured their bodies to an optim optimal energy condition. That's super interesting. So we've, we've uh, gotten into the the pineal gland now that's a cool little topic let's uh let's talk about that for a minute so the the pineal gland or pineal gland that's a little gland that's in the uh where is it someone tell me the center it's close the to the center yeah center of the brain there's no there's it's it's one of the only um parts of the brain that has no left right dichotomy in the brain which is interesting that's cool it falls right between the center of your eyebrows yeah, yeah. So that and that corresponds to the uh, was it the Ajna chakra, the third eye chakra? Yeah, that's the Ajna chakra where yogis are supposed to focus their eyesight to to develop one pointedness in meditation experiences. So by by aligning your sight to to that chakra, you're essentially uh, optimizing the heart mind coherence to a level where there is a maximum resonance of energy that you are gaining through the universe so now if we expand on that back to what uh what eric was saying i guess what we're all saying um if if we are if our brain and the water in the brain and the electrical signals in the brain are producing photons that are coming out of the vacuum this means that they are um linked to the holographic field that is basically entangling the entire universe and it seems more and more likely that you get a sort of third sight um, from from intense meditation or other antigens or psychedelics and what you are seeing is actually literally being produced in the brain by biophoton emission which is then interpreted just like uh, phot just like photonic emission that, that hit the eyeballs so these visionary states could potentially be at least partially influenced by the non-local universal field, the Akashic records or whatever name you want to assign to it. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, we're, you can say that, it, you can reduce it down to just it's a chemical reaction in the brain and it's, you know, all a hallucination or something, but... I think you can also look at it from a metaphysical point of view where you're you're tying yourself back into the uh the cosmic consciousness you know you're you're getting a glimpse of of what's behind the curtain so to speak and um 
I think it's, you know, there, there's been some really interesting, even if it's all anecdotal experience, um, experiences, the fact that it goes back all the way to ancient times, you know, however long ago that was. But even if we, we go with the mainstream consensus that, you know, Egypt was flourishing, what, in, was it 4,000 B.C.? 3,000 B.C.? So thousands of years we've been studying this and, you know, people have been having these experiences where they, they can see the other side, the, um, you know, into the astral world, into the metaphysical, into the beyond. And I think that just to reduce it down to a set of chemical reactions in the brain is just so self-limiting. You know, we're, we're just reducing our, we're, we're limiting ourselves into what our possible potentials are. And um, that's just disappointing to see. Yeah, not only that, it's a horrible model for for explaining anything. It really doesn't. It really it, it's it's is it's akin to saying that balls are bouncing together um, in the brain randomly and create like you know there's a lot of balls, but it it has very very little predictive power and very little power to explain how such organization grew out of anything and for what reason like it it, the the yeah the the chemical thing is is it's not only self-limiting it's not even a good uh a good model in my opinion i mean it's it's just it can get so nihilistic and uh you know if there if it's all randomness and it's this beautiful earth was just thrown together by random balls knocking into each other then it's i mean a lot of people think what's the point and i i think that's kind of i don't think that feels like how it's supposed to be and i know that's just that's really a subjective stretch but it just doesn't sit right and i i think that even if it's not you know we still don't understand it i i I think that to say that it's all just randomness is completely missing a huge portion of reality i mean they give entropy their due but negentropy gets lost in the mix yes yeah all right what's what's negan negentropy basically negative entropy it's it's like a centripetal force that is attracting charge back to a a wormhole so um that's another aspect of the the space memory network paper which it, it opens up and it's like okay so if you get a big bang and explosion the easiest thing, the, what the universe is going to do over and over again, is everything's going to just fizzle out. There's no reason for it to conjoin and um, become more and more complex structures. You know, there's no reason for for um, atoms to form, and then there's no reason for molecules to form out of that, and then biological systems and consciousness. Like, what is driving the universe to 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 seem to be organizing on all scales of and for all time. And it proposes that this wormhole connected vacuum, um, this non-local field is sort of allows for non-local resonances to happen across, uh, space and across time even. So this is basically when, whenever something is, is able to, is able to make a more complex form that it's, it's encoding this information um, in this non-local field. And then that information is then now accessible 
and it's not like you know it's not we're not talking about like a hard drive reading um anything we're just talking about resonance so it's like um the concept of like entrainment comes into play you know when you like when you're swinging pendulums and you put another pendulum into the mix like say you have 20 pendulums you put another one that's swinging the wrong way well soon that pendulum will be entrained with the rest of the pendulums and then you'll get one one motion so if you start to think of um you know, atoms and molecules as like tuning forks reading into this whole non-local field, then by just a um, a playing out of that, you'll start to get evolution of complex forms and have it extend even, have, have, yeah, yeah. So I guess I'll, I'll stop there for that because it gets it gets super interesting when you bring time into the picture and you, you start, if the quantum vacuum is entangled and there's, like what what Eric was was saying earlier, then time it gets a little bit um, it gets a little tricky too because both the past and the future are like sort of interfering with themselves to make the present moment and you could start to see like a teleological attractor or some omega point that is sort of pulling uh, things towards complexity like what Terence McKenna and more and uh, Rupert Sheldrick were, were talking about many years ago. So there is an an end in sight, or there is another force on the other side pulling us towards um i guess a singularity would be the uh the height of complexity yeah yeah complete complete and total complexity and connection which i guess if you have complete and total complexity and connection you have uh unity again you have singular complete singularity and you have uh, uh complete ultimate potential because at that point it would be a single point of matter or energy, so it would be ultimately uh, all potential, and maybe it just explodes out again and starts it all over. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's what starts the Big Bang. <laughs> so essentially, uh, does that mean that in any situation that energy puts itself into, it seeks like the a sort of lowest common denominator resonant solution to to get a perpetual neutralization where no energy needs to be created or destroyed but it is somehow connected to to unity through a wormhole network as suggested yeah it, it does it does so it's interesting if you think about it it's like the big bang and i think ctmu goes into this it's like you could either think about the Big Bang is an expansion, but you can also think about what's happening is um, sort of a dreaming inwards of this singular point. Like it's sort of, yeah, it's and it's 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 a constant energy. It's just an interplay of this energy, um, dreaming inwards. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but you could you could also think of us of. Um, the Big Bang can be, can yeah, you could sort of think of it as expanding or you, you could think of it going inwards called conspansion, which is kind of cool. Yeah, well, I mean, if it's going inwards, it's it's got to have somewhere to go. Um, I mean, you can, we can think of it like with our mind. Our mind is is ultimately, I would say, potentially infinite. And what you can think, there there's no really limits or possibilities on what thoughts can come into your mind. So you can, when you're growing up, you're exposed to different things. And I think it, uh, it kind of opens you, you up to more possibilities and you can have thoughts relating to things that you see like an apple or, or 
a crib or, you know, you're growing up, you go to school, you see other people and you have more experiences and, and your mind can generate these thoughts, but you're only limited by what experiences you can have. So you can think about anything, but the space, the physical space is not expanding. Your brain's not, you know, at, at a point it gets bigger, but at some point your brain is, is one size or it's getting smaller even, but I don't know where I'm going with this. Yeah, yeah, infinite, <laughs> like infinitely, infinitely nested dimensional awareness. You could just keep keep going, keep going. Yeah, I I think it's just a, a way to to imagine that you know something that's not physically growing can still grow in depth, um, inwardly. Right, totally, and complexity. We read more information now every day than people 100 years ago read their entire life. Uh, where is that information going? We're obviously able to retain most of it. It's not like we're experiencing more in our day-to-day with them, but we we read so much now that we're retaining it. So it's got to go somewhere. And it ties back to the interaction with the holographic mass. If if all points in the universe are connected, then our, our brains have the entire universe in which to encode it on. When you think of things like um, twin telepathy, where you have twins that seemingly from distance have the same thoughts at the same time or, or text each other or know when each other's hurt. Um, it's, that's their this identical DNA reading from the holographic mass in the same way. It, it just opens up all those kind of doors to, to psychic phenomenon and, and things like uh, a ghosts and, and imprints of consciousness on objects that once everything is connected that's no longer it's no longer a, a, a boundary there is no boundary yeah that's beautiful you said i mean it's it's about recognizing that there can be harmonic resonance even on a biological level and how you can find this unifying principle of a self-referencing process in realms of pure arithmetic you can find it in geometry you can find it in musical law and astrology so, I mean, there are no things in relation that are incapable of achieving rhythmic balance and harmonic unity. You can find this throughout all all four of these uh, relativity exploring uh, perspectives of analyzing reality. So it doesn't matter what the relative dissonances are. All all motion and all action and reaction known by the world through the workings of energy are a result of energy maintaining its harmonic unity. There is a functionally guiding unifying principle that is at the blueprint of this reality. And nature itself is a result of energy's ability to maintain a perfect harmonic resolution of itself. That is super beautiful. So <clears throat> it, it, this, this, um, when this energy can be in, in harmonic relation with itself, you get complexity, you form um vague entropy basically out of this when 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 it's not interfering with itself when it's able to ha- have a harmonic system you 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 could start to see what um reality growing out of this this principle seems like we're partially in a disharmonic state right now as a species well hopefully we're heading towards a harmonic one yes because I can't take much more of this. What's going on right now? God, I hope 2018 is better. Jesus. I think we're already on the way. <laughs> Ascension needs to get here soon. 
I get a taste of this community every day and I can feel it coming. Uh, I mean, I I don't know. I I think things are going to get better eventually. It everything goes in cycles. So. Always darkest before the dawn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which reminds hey, me the that... more it sucks, the uh, the better it'll be afterwards, right? The further you go to the left, the further you're going to swing to the right on the upswing. And the the exactly. funnier the funnier it'll be when it's all said and done, and we're looking back on it, we're like, wow, we thought we were screwed for a while there, and we thought that was, you know, super dramatic, like super real and super dramatic, but oh, we're, we're fine. It's just drama mismanagement by a crowd. I feel. I, I think it's just the abundance of information that has led us to believe that we somehow have had it worse when you don't even fail to look back and look what the dark ages had for us as a species. Yeah, it's very chaotic. It's super chaotic. There's so much information that it, it all at once, and we're trying to make sense of it, and we're trying to um, also keep the old, not us, but a lot of people are trying to keep the old machine going, the old, um, like the old way, the old, you know, material. The way things are, or the way things were. Yeah, it gets kind of scary to realize the implications of everything that that's sort of been coming up. I mean, could you imagine the effect on the economy if all of the gasoline-powered vehicles were suddenly swapped for electric vehicles? Yeah, and what about over-unity devices? What happens What happens when over-unity blueprints are released online? Um, what happens if when we're able to tap the vacuum? That's, that's multi-trillion dollar in- industry that's made obsolete overnight. The, war, the wars that are associated with, with, with energy... Um, and oil and petrodollars and that whole paradigm can be hopefully it, it seems like it's, it's going to be able to be shrugged off but yeah thinking about the implications of how that goes down is super interesting i mean it's it's definitely a moral uh i mean there, there's concern there's moral concern too because you have to have a solution ready for all these people that would lose their jobs and and I'm not talking about just one situation in particular, but I'm talking about any paradigm-shifting technology. Uh, like if we jump into um, like truck drivers, for example. I need to look up how many truck drivers there are in America, but if you just anybody who's driven on the interstate recently can attest to the fact that it's a lot. And when automated trucking comes along and, and automated logistics and it's being handled out by, handled by an AI and that's driving and they're self-driving trucks, what are we going to do with all these people that can't do anything else but drive? There's not going to so, be a place for them. Yeah, so this philosophically super interesting because what we're trying to do is make sure people have work. And it gets super uh it's super weird to think that like what we're trying to do right now as a, as a species that's sort of lost is make more jobs. (laughs) Like that's, it's kind of odd when you zoom out and think about it, we want to make more work and make more jobs. Right. And it sort of speaks to the state of affairs that, that humanity is sitting at right now when, when we're worried about that. But yes, I agree. It it is a, it is a very real worry and we're going to have to see a massive change in, uh, value systems and um, the way we operate as a society to, to be able to do that. But don't you guys think that uh, the whole concept of scarcity has been a self-sabotage and it's not a living reality as it is purported to be? I mean, there are enough there are enough proofs of solutions 
that we could have been derived from alternative technologies to benefit society and i feel like we are in an inertia of at least 300 400 years in our true progress not the one that has been manufactured for us to believe as abundance right now but a model of abundance that could have been facilitated in providing secure energy resources to fulfill basic survival conditions of almost everyone on the planet where we would have gone further from that kind of economy is up to us but at least we all would have had that privilege and it's a very feasible thing it's not like we're short on resources so this is something that that always baffled my mind when i was investigating these technologies comes down to greed we have the consolidation of wealth and power and um, those that want power want more power and they they keep these these resources for themselves i mean uh, just the other day jeff bezos became the richest man in in at least the us uh, surpassing bill gates at 94 billion dollars what is he ever going to do with 94 billion dollars he's going to uh, install self unlocking doors in your home so they can deliver up his packages to you more efficiently right got to find more data to feed on you take the top 10 earners in the entire US take their one year salary and i bet you could provide for anybody in the lower income brackets to you know live don't tell the donald this man oh, those we're getting in the socialism here That's a dirty <laughs> word Can't talk about it is, that i'm i'm not suggesting that that it be done by force i'm just saying that it's it's a byproduct of greed yeah so anything it's it's the system allows for it but it all it allows for it through allowing for innovation you have a good idea and it's marketed and that's how we got the internet and that's how we got all these other technologies that were coming out with how we have smartphones it's how we have netflix it's how we have skype to talk about these these concepts is entrepreneurs and and people come on up with ideas because it's profitable but at the same time that just ends up padding the pockets of the few and the idea of charity is apparently beneath them this reminds me of um terence mckenna's idea that sort of history and even our fall into history which seems to be seems to be negative but could have been a a necessary sort of thing for us for us to go through where we're where we're doing like a a couple thousand year dive into uh into technological creation into um into materialism into this kind of thing because we we're getting to a certain place where we're going to transcend um either technologically or uh, psychospiritually or, or consciousnessly but it's interesting that how long would it have taken to get the internet or to get you know this sort of global communication network uh without the type of civilization that we that western society brought through right you have to you have to be a slave to appreciate being free yeah yeah i feel you have to transmute the darkness before you begin to realize the value of light absolutely but that's the uh well, i mean it's polarity is a scale it's you know you can't measure one without the other you can't have hot without cold or or bad without good and we're good without it's bad it's it's an inescapable truth and i don't think we should try to escape that i feel uh like i remember we us discussing this in the last episode how carl jung was one of the pioneering philosophers who 
decided to actively seek that unconscious being and develop therapies to integrate it rather than try to expel it as an identity and not try to make it into a light versus dark debate that turns man into an irrational being that needs to be programmed for societal well-being and i feel like that is the kind of model that's been followed this exaggerated survivalist mindset that is existing despite the fact that we don't really need it to survive as a species our our purpose is beyond survival our purpose yeah. is far deeper and that is what we need to investigate and i feel like we have enough resources available to to invest in technologies that can get us out of this mess now i'd have to say theoretically you're right there there is the um the potential for for there to be no need for a survivalist instinct but there practically there are still situations where um you know it has benefit and but it's it's because we we're having to survive against our ourselves you know it's not that there's some other apex predator out there or anything that's stronger than us we're having to use our survivalist instincts against other humans you know because we we are currently in a fear-based mindset and not a love-based mindset you know we're we're trying to get our own and it's just self it feels self-perpetuating that's exactly the word i was just going to use to describe what you just what you just said which i think what uh prashant brought up earlier which it's like it's it's all self-imposing and so it brings up an interesting point about no model that we put on top of uh, humanity, no system of government, nothing top down. It doesn't seem will we'll function. It seems it has to be uh, from the individual and from the value systems of uh, the people in general that make this shift happen. And it seems like that's the only way it's going to go through. I think we need to switch from management by idealism to management by karma, management by consequences to make people more responsible in developing their own mindsets to investigate reality i feel that is the only real poverty you really have in life if you don't have enough access to information about your well-being that is the only thing that's holding you back there are no villains there are no authority figures out there that can take that away from you they can only do it to a certain extent of dominating over your survival and your societal well-being tendencies but there is a portion of you that can retreat and then also gain a lot in that negentropic return to investigating your source consciousness and establishing a morality around it instead of trying to force a belief system onto your own to make yourself believe that this is somehow going to keep you safe and elegant for society to relate with that reminds me of someone who was put onto death row and pretty much everybody knew he was innocent and someone a meditation master went in there and taught him uh, i forget the type of meditation but he was able to you know be, be he's as like the most dominated you could get the most infringed upon his will that you could possibly get and he was able to transcend all of it by going inwards so it seems like that is always a possibility for people i also want to um say that e- even if you can have it without a religious perspective but looking at what we uh, see as the teachings of Jesus that he says to turn the other cheek, you know, and that doesn't mean allow yourself to be trampled upon, but I think it's to, you have, you, you get what you put, give into it. So if someone is, is, you know, punishing you or whatever, you have to give back to them 
love. You can you can hate them and you can persecute them and and want to seek vengeance on them, but you have to um, you have to be the one to take action and to to decide not to to do that. I mean, to to only give them uh, compassion and and to feel sorry for them because they're you know they don't know what they're doing. They 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 don't realize that they're they're perpetuating this and it takes we have to break out of that we have to see that we're the ones that are that are feeding this and we have to stop it and we can only do that if we forgive people um even if it's in the midst of of intense incredible pain forgive them father for they know not what they do exactly amen and i i don't think that you have to be a christian or um jewish or you know islam or a muslim to to appreciate that and to appreciate that teaching that you know it's we we have to love each other and we have to just uh forgive one another exactly and i mean even at the bottom of it even if you take the religious route and you really investigate the kind of knowledge that they were talking about they are just symbols of archetypes essentially that our consciousness has embraced for god knows how long but they have persisted and maybe that is reason enough for us to take a fair look at them like seems... the very word when i said amen i mean that that same word is known as arm in in, in uh, sanskrit and that very word is called amin in in uh, islam and that very word represents the alpha and the omega in the greek mythology so i feel it 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 really doesn't make sense when people say what is not worth to investigate if there was so much of communion in uh, the information shared across different civilizations when they didn't even have the technology to communicate with each other the way we do these times i mean it's a universal sound it's a universal symbol exactly that kind of speaks to the idea of uh, uh, information transfer from a an older species or um uh, or civilization rather the the fact that all of these different cultures around the world around the same same time these ancient cultures have have same imagery and same ideas about the universe and and similar building styles and artwork kind of kind of speaks to the idea that there's a, a lost civilization pre-dryas um period that that uh Uh, Hancock and Sheldrake talked about. How does that tie into? Does that tie into the hollow factor theory, with Joe? Yeah, it does actually. Um, a lot of the, a lot of the symbols that are shared, um, most notably the flower of life, uh, is which has been on the blasted on the walls everywhere. Uh, it's found all over the world. It seems like a very simple geometric drawing. Uh, for people who are unfamiliar, it's just overlapping circles, like an overlapping circles grid. Um, the most famous, I think, is on the Assyrian temple in ancient Egypt, where it seems pretty clear to me, and from reading other people's work on this, that they had some sort of gravitational control. But the important thing about the flower of life, life and other symbols, uh, is well, the flower of life for one is representative of how these those Planck spheres that make up the solution are packed. in empty space they're completely uh space filling tessellating uh geometries and so it's also cool to see 
this symbol and others like it, the seed of life, uh, the tube tour, stuff like that. There's, they're like reemerging in the collective consciousness right now. And people aren't even aware of this physical interpret, this physical interpretation or that they, that it actually represents something that is at the core of physics. And it's just amazing to see that it resonates so hard, which goes which is even more credence to the solution that some information is non-local or that we have some collective memory uh, that goes back through our species and maybe even collective uh, information transfer through the entire universe. The blocks in ancient Egypt that are 130 ton stones that are a thousand ton uh, obelisks, like there's, it's just insanity to believe that these things were raised with hemp ropes and so, you, and and you know, with with slaves and logs, and it starts to open up ch- like channels of discussion into what sort of ancient technologies there were, and why the certain why the certain temples look like they do, where they have uh, different sized interlocking stones that what would would imbue a certain structural resonance to the building that make it. Uh, have certain acoustical properties and stuff like that. All, all this ancient science that's starting to repop up when you look at it, sort of with with a unified physics perspective. Wasn't there some um, recent calculation that the the number of stones in the pyramid and the amount that they weighed, if they were to do it in this time frame, they would have to put one up like at like eight an hour or something. Well, the yeah, the mainstream is sort of cornered, uh, in my opinion, and other people's opinions have cornered themselves because they have to attribute the Great Pyramid to Khufu, and that means that they, it gives them a twenty-year time frame to build this to build the structure. Uh, this is this is like the actual Egyptology story. If you go to Wikipedia and you put and you type in Great Pyramid, and I say story because the evidence for it is extremely extremely little. I mean, there's the, the the reason they attribute it to this one pharaoh is because they found a red okra graffiti of cartouche of his name in one of the hidden chambers uh, it, on top of the king's chamber. There's some, some hidden antechambers. And that is the piece of evidence that links this pharaoh to this pyramid. And from that, they have to build a story around it. And from that, they have to claim that... Um, 2,300,000 blocks of stone were put into place uh, in 20 years. And yeah, I think it was pretty clear that Khufu had had worked on the pyramid or at least had people working on the pyramid possibly for um, restoration purposes. Um, you know, it, it gets into uh, like some of the other evidence that doesn't, like there's physical evidence that don't line up with the dates such as the Sphinx enclosure. If you look at the building styles, so like of the Valley Temple of the Sphinx versus some of the other styles all over the world, like uh, uh, in Peru, um, in Mexico, where you have these uh, enormous blocks that are that are interlocking in different sizes and perfectly uh, like they look like they were molded together. Um, this building style is not it's extremely hard to pull off it doesn't seem like you'd have any benefit to do it and it looks like they were able to do it with ease like we would never we would never cut stones to weird globular shapes so that we can perfectly pack them together do you know what i mean right right and i mean i don't even think that we we've uh 
been able to have the, the we don't have the technology to build them now. I mean, I don't think that we could. I think we could do it if we put everything into it, but with just our our modern construction equipment, it wouldn't be something that we could we could throw up very quickly. I don't think so either. I mean, not this doesn't even mention the the, the mathematical precision and the constants that are encoded all over the pyramid. The golden ratios, the phi. Absolutely, yeah. It, it gets it 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 really doesn't line up with what we know about the 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 dynasties of Egypt that are are claimed of Khufu and Khafre. Yeah. So, uh, oh, and attributing it to Khufu, um, it it was just one piece of graffiti on the wall, and that said Khufu if I'm not mistaken, and then that's why they attribute it to him? Yeah, that's the that's the main hard piece of evidence that exists for it. Um, that we don't know. Like, it, it it could have been the people that opened that antechamber that that placed it there, you know, and there's some speculation that it was, actually. Yeah, I but think yeah. it's really interesting when you talk about uh, geometric ratios being encoded in, in all these ancient uh, civilization marvels. Because... There, the, you can see a common principle of bio-architecture being embedded in all these civilizations in the kind of temples they were building. You, it, it's found almost uniform, unilaterally, I feel. The golden ratio and certain other important sacred geometry ratios. So, uh, bio-architecture bio is probably the field that contains the principles and rules for building and building land use that functions in harmony with the with the harmonic process of nature let's say the ultimate goal of bioarchitecture is to create a bunch of fractal charge fields these are essentially uh, termed by dan winter as spaces and their re- resulting energy patterns that can nest inside each other like russian dolls so this is the process of creating a life force that is implosive in nature and is self referencing if you want like an, an ideal example of this concept, you can see it in the blossoming of a rose, which uh, unfolds along the emergent pathways using the golden ratio. And you can see these shapes being upgraded or downgraded at without without any difference in scale. It's it's almost fractal in its construction. So this would explain how the biology is just is growing but maintaining its exact same uh, form as it gets larger and larger. This is. This is sort of due to golden ratio scaling. I think these were tools and technologies that were left as hints to where we need to look to get in touch with these kind of energies. I feel the biggest implication you can get out of these these kind of information is to uncover how they affect your psychophysiology because that is one thing that we will always be in intimate control of in our awareness. I mean, the rest of the information is very valuable, but... We need to kind of refine our ability to assimilate information by how it serves our self-realization. Because if we if we try to avoid going that route, that is when we get overwhelmed with by this information abundance because we're not focused enough to align with this harmonic optimization that nature has assigned for each and every one of us. So this is sort of um, getting into like Dan Winter's work. Is that right? Dan Winter's talks about the bioactive fields and the fractal uh, fractal electromagnetic wave nesting. Yeah, I mean, he's taken uh, an electrical engineer's perspective on Dan Winter's work. 
Yeah, Dan Winter's work seems very um, complementary to Nassim's, and Nassim is describing these charge fields, gravity as this as this flow of these Planck electromagnetic packets down to the center, the core of the proton, and that these are building on one another, these toroidal flows. And Dan Winter is basically saying the same thing, if I'm not mistaken, which is the only way you get um, gravity is by by having perfectly nested electromagnetic waveforms that are able to constructively interfere with themselves, and while doing exactly. so, it, it, yeah, increase in acceleration, which is also what Nassim says. As you get this toroidal flow towards the core of the proton, you're increasing uh, the spin. You're getting increased acceleration until you get an, an expulsion. So it's awesome to see that these two guys that are approaching like a unified field from two different perspectives, they perfectly nest, we could say, they perfectly harmonically nest with each other. Yeah, that's beautifully put. Okay, so I want to take it in a, a different direction now. Um, let's talk about what's morphic resonance. You know, everything's entangled, and we talked about entrainment. Um, let's let's bring it back into, say, Bintov, for example. He talks about how everything is entrained because everything's made of waves, uh, essentially. So how can we relate that into holofractal, or can we? Uh, yeah, I certainly think so. Um, so there was a document that was sort of circulating on the Internet in a couple of different subreddits uh, a couple of months ago. And the document, I think, is part of a dump from their project Stargate files, which was their um, sort of foray into remote viewing and their experimentation and theories around how it could possibly be functioning. Um, so this document is like a giant research document by a couple of people, and it features the work of um, Itzhak Bentov, who is, I think, an Israeli um, scientist slash engineer, and he, yeah, he was all about um, about wave harmonics, about entrainment, um, about resonance, uh, and about how these sorts of fields in the body could sort of be harmonized, I guess you could say, and sort of allow a, a link, like a harmonic link up. And the, the to go back to the document for a bit, the document is pretty astonishing because it shows that the CIA was sort of entertaining ideas about a non-local uh, universe, about a universe that is completely entangled. They hit a lot of points in the 70s that still, that basically line up with Nissim's theory perfectly, where they're talking about, you know, a uh, a Planck field uh, energy domain that basically is allowing um, non-local uh, wave transfer or non-local information transfer uh, in their explanation for how remote viewing might be possible after they were seeing positive results. Uh, they also um, they also basically talked about uh, holography. They talked about how this this uh, information could be nested uh, in this field at all points. They talked about a black hole, white hole. Uh, cosmological torus model, which is also very similar to Nis what Nissim is describing. Uh, so it's it was astonishing to see this document come out and to see that they were taking these theories seriously like 50 years ago. And it makes you really wonder what happened to, to, to this research that they've done and whether the CIA still takes it seriously, whether they, whether this information went underground or whether it was just never taken seriously to begin with. Yeah, this, uh, real quick, this document is, I'm looking at it now, it's on uh, the CIA.gov website in the reading room, 
It's called uh, Analysis and Assessment of Gateway Process, and it's to commander of the U.S. Army Operational Group at Fort Meade, Maryland. And uh, But yeah, it's uh, it says, you know, you asked me to look into the gateway, ex- or you tasked me to provide an assessment of the gateway experience in terms of its mechanics and ultimate practicality. Uh, and so this is a declassified document, and the, the first referenced work in the bibliography is uh, Bentov's book, Stalking the Wild Pendulum. Um, so, yeah, I'll link this in the show notes, but sorry to, uh, to interrupt you. Oh, yeah. Uh, does someone want to talk, does someone want to talk about Bentov? Bentov has been really, uh, instrumental in redefining time space as well, because I mean, uh, up to this point, our discussion, when we're talking about the gateway process, it's been pretty simple and easy to follow when it, when it comes to the remote viewing aspect of it, but when you get into the deeper mechanics of it and you see how gateway involves more than just perception of those aspects of the universal hologram, which can be accessed in the dimension of space-time as we know it, there is a realm that is beyond time and space as well. So this is the territory that the Monroe Institute and uh, Bentov had started exploring with the help of the CIA. So that word time space that's on purpose right that's a reversal of space time and that's that's a, like a that's like an equation right that's like instead of having a uh, geometry in which you're moving in space and you have physical distance and time is a function of that this is it makes more sense when you when you call it space memory as nasim says i guess because time in in our definitions has mostly been just produced as a linear concept so when right. we talk about memory, I think we our mind is open to exploring it in geometric dimensions as well, instead of just looking for the concrete uh, left-brain approach that we generally try to take towards it. Right. So if, if time is a function of memory, and if the entire universe is a single quantumly entangled system, then it follows that there is a portion of the universe that is not at the basis of time like if you were able to experience uh, if you're able to traverse this quantum entanglement uh both forward and backward in time then you're no you're talking about uh like perceiving or experiencing uh multiple slices of time or or no time at all which seems to re- relate to what you were saying but this this timeless um this timeless plane, like which has been called the astral plane, which has been called uh, acacia source, this it's been explored in different mystery religions and, and psychedelic things. The akashic records. Yeah, the akashic yeah. records. So it's also interesting um, if you look at in the Sims proton, it seems that any singularity seems to be more of a time space domain than a space time domain, and this time space is like uh, geometric configurations that are reading specific points in the time memory instead of the space memory. And the reason why it's time space is because in this singularity, there's no distance because it's all entangled. There's no distance. All that there is is different configurations of, of this um, entangled nest. And so you get to some very like interesting um, implications when thinking about that and thinking about what remote viewing the past or what breakthrough consciousness experiences are that seem to this timeless realm. I always go back to the, uh, the remote viewing experiment done where they viewed Mars a million years ago 
and they saw this uh, this civilization that was under you know this huge threat of extinction, uh, like there was a storm going on, or and they were deep underground and they were looking for some place to go, and it was you know they think it was Earth or whatever, but. This was, they asked people to remote view a, uh, a location in an envelope, and it was the planet Mars one million years ago. It's interesting. It is. It seems completely absurd in the modern cosmological models. It seems like almost insanity, but when you look at it in light of unified physics, which is showing us that, that uh, like energy is spatio-temporally entangled, like backwards and forwards, then all, all it would be is a matter of resonating to the correct time points, the, the correct um, information, the correct like uh, perspective that gives you that, that gives you read access to that information that's already written everywhere. Still, yeah, I mean, you can get into you know where does original thought come from, and you know where where do new ideas come from, and where does anything that we create that doesn't exist before come from? You know, like painting or sculpture or, or uh, music composition. You know, where, where are we pulling that from? Where is that information coming into our mind from? Isn't there declassified information in the document of Ingo Swan being able to detect uh, an extra ring on Jupiter before they were able to scientifically confirm it? Uh, I'll have to look that up. I'm not sure. I hadn't heard that, but I would not doubt it. I mean, there's a lot of demonstrable evidence that there were successful experiments. That is why the program carried on for so long. And it probably went into the dark because they were so successful at uh, developing them that they didn't want this to be declassified earlier on. And I'm sure the most successful ones were, are still not declassified. I think they were already going through the crisis of handling the psychedelic generation and trying to contain that revolution in mindsets that they needed to suppress this information of logically approaching alternate states of consciousness. So here's one interesting paper that was declassified regarding Ingo Swan. Uh, we report a preliminary study of psychokinetic influence on a noise-driven binary random generator with Ingo Swan. Mr. Swan has produced significant psi effects in a variety of controlled tests in three different laboratories. He may, without exaggeration, be called an applied specialist in this area. Our primary objective, therefore, was not merely to provide another demonstration of PK or of Mr. Swan's abilities, but rather to introduce him to this from form of psychokinetic task in order to assess the feasibility of developing a systematic research effort that would utilize Mr. Swan's insight and ability to maximum advantage. So he he was able to influence a random number generator? Is that what it... Based on his mind powers. <laughs> <laughs> Psychokinesis. I think I remember reading another one about him where uh, they had a, a compass underneath the ground uh, or the floor that he was on, and it was like protected by a bunch of EM shielding, and there was nothing that couldn't influence it. And he was able to influence the compass that was underneath all this the shielding. And he, he wasn't even aware that he was going to be tested at the time, I think. I just There's a lot of really crazy psychic uh tests that they did experiments that that had a, a unexpected result you know not not what they were expecting at all um kessler explores a lot of these in his books uh the one i always love to recommend and have re recommended it many times before is uh his book um 
and snap, I can't remember, think of the name right now, The Roots of Coincidence, uh, his book, The Roots of Coincidence, An Excursion into Parapsychology. Uh, there's a great quote that I can uh, pull from it that says, you know, a scientist was uh, present, said, if I was presented with a, a hundred thousand examples of, of psychic phenomena, I still would not accept it. Um, and I'll, I'll pull that quote out because it was, it was really just kind of insightful into the, uh, what was mainstream scientists view at the time of, um, that phenomena and what still is, I think. This goes back to the conversation we were having earlier about, uh, the, the main, the main paradigms of being sort of a belief system and influencing how we look at results and how we, um, form, you know, form beliefs about new, new observations and stuff like this. Um, it's, it's, it's very interesting because like even most, even some psychonauts who have had these experiences, which are, which clearly point to like consciousness being a non-local phenomenon, uh, have to write it off as an illusion because they don't have a model for it to, to work for it to make any sort of logical sense. And so it's a big jump. You're jumping into what what would be defined as like an insane, like insanity when you have to do this without, without a model that could explain these things for you. So that's what, that's where I could see some of like our rational psychodot coming up and people that are, you know, just totally dismiss these things off offhand. And that's uh, why I think that holofractal has been so important for so many people because it's like, uh, Oh, this, this, this now fits and I don't have to, you know, totally jump off into um, subjective experience defining my reality, but I also have this objective uh, sort of math and sort of um, like uh, physics des describing energy dynamics to to help help knit the two, subjective, subjective and objective. Got something to back it up. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I found that, uh, that quote. Um, it's needless to say, and this is from that book uh, in the chapter, the ABC of ESP. Needless to say, a number of scientists maintain a hostile attitude, though they admit being impressed by the evidence. Perhaps the most bellicose among them is Professor Hansel, who recently made a sort of last-ditch stand on the conspiracy of fraud theory. Another psychologist wrote in the American Journal Science that, quote, not a thousand experiments with ten million trials and by a hundred separate investigators, end quote, could make him accept extrasensory perception. In a similar vein, the professor of psychology at McGill University, D.O. Hebb, a leaving, leading behaviorist, frankly declared that he rejected the evidence for telepathy, strong though it was, quote, because the idea does not make sense, end quote, admitting that this rejection was, quote, in the literal sense, just prejudiced, end quote. So it's, you know, they're just outright saying, at least they did then, that they're just not going to accept it because it doesn't feel right. And isn't that kind of, you know, just what we've been talking about the whole time? I think there's just such an uncalled for chasm between the scientific and spiritual domains when they're both investigating the same truth in essence. So, like, when I see this whole, this illusion of superiority between uh, reason and feeling as means of evaluating reality, I always end up asking these two questions to the same person, no matter what ideology they stand for, whether they stand for intellectualism or spirituality. I just ask them, can the wetness of a river tell you about where it's been flowing? Or can the flow of a river tell you about what wetness feels like? So this is just 
this is just a simple problem of trying to dissect reality in a one dimensional way when you have instruments capable of assessing it in a more balanced fashion the same way a 2d being can't tell you what 3d is i don't think that we can tell you what exactly it uh, just the other dimensions are like it just look like it's it's appearing and disappearing at different uh, coordinates in our space time if a four dimensional entity in, enters and exits our system yeah we just we literally cannot perceive it and it's you just can't can't even begin to comprehend i think but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try yeah and, and there's more than one avenue i guess for for this exploration, and I guess what uh, Prashant keeps saying is that they're both val- very valid avenues of exploration. Oh yeah, like I mean, the, a mystical or a religious experience of or understanding of the universe, you know, it's it shouldn't be discredited because it's not a scientific or or can be backed up by uh, you know the scientific method or experience or experimental. Um, I, I think that they're we discount subjective experience way too much. Absolutely. I mean, it's funny how the power of subjective subjective experience is uh, not validated in mainstream science when you have guys like Wim Hof who are putting in the necessary work of verifying these amazing abilities that were previously considered to be impossible by scientific standards as a benchmark of human performance in reality. I mean, if you if you know the kind of records he has set and... I guess everyone else here has also benefited a lot from his practices. So, yeah, I'll let you guys talk about Wim Hof. I think you both have good experience in uh, his practices. I did two rounds right before doing this podcast. But, yeah. <laughs> yes, Wim Hof's awesome. So, let's uh, describe or just tell our listeners who, who he is real quick. He's the Iceman. He uh, set numerous world records, uh, spending time under ice, swimming under uh, sheets of ice in the Arctic, um, running marathons uh, almost naked in both the Arctic and in deserts, um, in, in the desert with no water, I believe. He routinely uh, uh, climbs with senior citizens uh, up large mountains and helps them up there with his um, breathing technique, it's his meditative breathing technique series of quick um, um, filling the lungs you fill uh, uh, quickly let the breath out and then you, you keep doing that about 30 times you know <sighs> and do that about 20 or 30 times and then you let it all out and stop breathing you just stop and you sit I've done this many times myself I need to do it more uh, but the time at times I have um, you end up if you time yourself, you end up holding your breath for a minute, two minutes. I've even hit three minutes, and I am I'm not a very physical, physically active person. So for me to hold my breath for three minutes and not pass out was was amazing. But it wasn't that wasn't even the, the amazing part. It was while you were in this 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 state of of stillness, it didn't seem like there was a, a time. Um, although my only connection to to reality was the fact that I was timing myself and I knew I was timing myself but if I didn't have that I would have been completely just still in a zen state and there were times where I didn't time myself and I did hit that state and it, it was it did not feel like minute two minutes it felt like there was no time it was pretty cool yeah disclaimer if you do this and pass out and hurt yourself I'm not responsible so 
be safe and don't thankfully sleep. the subconscious is usually uh, good enough to make you start breathing again after you pass out unless you have something blocking your airway you, you tend to start breathing again so another another cool thing that Wim Hof is able to do is exert conscious control over his his auto, his autoimmune response to um, like introduce uh, toxins right so he's using the same breathing technique to s sort of have um, more conscious control over something that's not that's supposed to be completely autonomous by the body which uh, points more to like a, a quantumly entangled body and that the consciousness is sort of pervade pervades the whole body and is able to be projected in the body which of course ties back again to what uh, ancient traditions and mystery schools would, would have told you a long time ago for like chi and prana and moving energy around the body. Yeah. I mean, it's very important to acknowledge that these practices are a powerful form of pranayama, which is the technique of ma managing your vital energies through a rhythmic breathing process. So a lot of these practices can trigger Kundalini experiences too, because in, in the yogic system, Pranayama is actually the fourth stage of a yogic practice. So when, when you take the path towards exploring consciousness, there are eight different stages called the Ashtanga Yoga as developed by Patanjali. So the first two stages are essentially about establishing a strong karmic foundation for your practices just to have principles of truthfulness, not stealing, managing your sensuality and managing your greed in reasonable levels so that your subconscious mind is not burdened by the processes of achieving stillness which you get into in later stages. Then we move on to the asana after we have mastered the, the niyama and yama stages, the initial uh, character integrity that we need to pursue the processes of yoga. So the asana is the part where you work on the postural integrity of your body. I mean, in in uh, in the West and the East, you see plenty of schools per per perpetuating those practices in the most uh, skilled ways. But that is also this third stage because it is meant to establish a certain geometric perfection in in one particular posture that you can hold your ability to breathe rhythmically without any interruptions without any jerks before you move into pranayama and pranayama is the fourth process of controlling your energies so when we're talking about prana it basically does not mean just your breath it is talking about the close connection that exists between the breath and the causative flow of energy in the body so the word prana refers primarily to the energy underlying the universe so pranayama is about the control of these energies through these breathing exercises. The next set that gets you to a state of stillness after you've mastered your physical dimension of maintaining stillness to a certain level is to withdraw your senses. And that process is called pratyahara. So this is the beginning of your journey towards interiorizing your mind. Once the energy that has been redirected towards the source of the brain. Uh, that that process is uh, finally achieved. There has to be a one-pointedness in maintaining focus on whatever the object of your concentration is. 
so the next two stages that are dharana and dhyana are all about fusing this this difference between the subject and the observer it is to develop such a high degree of concentration that you feel that there is no essential duality remaining in the universe anymore the primary duality the primary duality that you can just describe through your physical dimension is simply the subject and the object the rest of these are just intellectual dualities that you can create depending on the exposure to your environment and your belief systems so after you've achieved this in the dharana and dhyana stages you go into that deep state of samadhi and this is the golden target that all enlightenment experiences talk about it is a state when you have finally dissolved your ego consciousness through absolute stillness in your posture in your breath in the state of your mind and also in just your comfort in being where you are so this samadhi comes when you are finally ready to dissolve your ego consciousness in the calm inner light of the singularity that connects everything in the universe that is when you have your first true ego death so when people ask me about meditation if i have to put it nicely to them i just say that meditation is a laxative that helps unclog the indigestion of your identification but if you don't want me to mince my words and tell you the truth by leveling to you for what it truly is it's a process where you are learning to die before you die that's amazing yeah that was that was great and i think that um a lot of the the things that we see over here um in the western tradition is what you described is a process you know it it sounds like something when you break when you see it on a sheet of paper and you see the 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 eight stages of yoga or it doesn't look like it's that much you know enlightenment doesn't seem that far away but it's it's a process that that can take years and i think we try to jump straight into the the third or the fourth stages without really giving due attention to preparing ourselves for that kind of practice and we don't take it seriously enough and you see you know we we try to just extract the the essence of it you know we we try to reduce it down to just what can we get from this what practical benefit can we get and you see apps like headspace which don't get me wrong you know they're they're not they're good things you know mindfulness meditation is good but i think that people that expect to become enlightened are completely missing the point but that was a a great breakdown of it uh, prashant thank you very much oh i just it just flows naturally yoga is the first love yeah it's interesting that um there seems to be a a shortcut to exper- at least experiencing this state and that is with like with with some psychedelics some entheogens particularly the ones that are already endogenous to the body and i do say shortcut because i don't think that it it rewires your conscious and subconscious minds the way uh, meditation does but it can certainly let you glimpse those states and i would also describe it as uh going through a death process that's how i i've seen many people describe it so it's very interesting that the two um parallel very well very well in that way 
Well, that's what, uh, I mean, the Tibetan Buddhism, you know, they, they have the, the Book of the Dead. There's the, the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Um, and it's all about preparing for death and, and the journey, uh, you know, through the afterlife. I think. I mean, they're 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 practicing death because they they believe and and I believe this too that it's not an end. It's just a new beginning. It's it's the next part of the journey. I mean, life's. I don't think that life's just it. Um, I can't say that I that I think that there's a, a you know it's black and white and like a heaven and a hell type thing afterwards. But I think that that there is something. I don't think we just go to sleep and that's it. Yeah, absolutely. But that's getting into a whole nother topic. I agree. I agree with that completely. Same. Well, guys, we've uh, we've been going for quite a long time here, and I feel like we could continue to go on for uh, another couple hours. But um, I think we might need to wrap it up just so we can get some lunch because it's I haven't had anything to eat today. I am starving. <laughs> yeah, even I'll have to grab dinner. I think soon. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you for having us. Yeah. Let's yeah. Gay time zones. Let's do it again. <laughs> Definitely. I feel like we, uh, I would, I, how do y'all feel like the, uh, the four people worked out? You think it was a good format? Mm-hmm. It wasn't just, yeah, I think it, it flowed naturally. Yeah. Yeah. I enjoyed it. So maybe we'll do it again sometime, but, uh, guys, I'll let you, uh, each have a final word real quick and then we can, uh, we can finish it up. Uh, I'd just like to uh, say the may the vacuum be with you. Yes. <laughs> I love it. May the vacuum be with you. Uh, Eric, did you have anything you wanted to say before we ended? Live long and prosper? Oh, no, that's the other. Um, no, just uh, thanks for having us. Um, it was a great conversation, great great time. Learned a lot. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Well, thanks for uh, coming on. And uh, Joe, did you have anything you wanted to leave us with? Just check out the subreddit, Halifractal. I'm sure if you're listening to this, you're probably aware of it. But yeah, and thanks for setting this up and getting us together for this. Absolutely. Guys, thanks for coming on. And uh, to our listeners, thank you. And we'll see you next episode.